Chapter Twenty Three of Elsie's Motherhood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elena May. Elsie's Motherhood, Chapter Twenty Three. Put a knife to thy throat if thou be a man given to appetite. Proverbs Twenty Three Two. The happy day came full soon to the fathers and mothers at long last to the expectant children old mr dinsmore had accepted a pressing invitation from his granddaughter and her husband to join the party and with the addition of servants it was a large one as they were in no haste and the confinement of a railroad car would be very irksome to the younger children it had been decided to make the journey by water it was late in the afternoon of an unusually warm, bright November day that they found themselves comfortably established on board a fine steamer bound for New Orleans. There were no sad leave-takings to mar their pleasure. The children were in wild spirits, and all seemed cheerful and happy as they sat or stood upon the deck, watching the receding shore as the vessel steamed out of the harbor. At length the land had quite disappeared. Nothing could be seen but the sky overhead and a vast expanse of water all round, and the passengers found leisure to turn their attention upon each other. "'There are some nice-looking people on board,' remarked Mr. Travilla, in an undertone to his wife. "'Besides ourselves,' added Cousin Ronald, laughing. "'Yes,' she answered. "'That little group yonder. A young minister and his wife and child, I suppose. And what a dear little fellow he is. Just about the age of our herald, I should judge.' "'Yes, mamma chimed in the last-named young gentleman. "'He's a nice little boy. May I go and speak to him? May I, Papa?' Permission was given, and the next moment the two stood close together, each gazing admiringly into the other's face. "'Papa,' remarked the little stranger, looking up at his father, "'I very much wish I had a face like this little boy's.' "'Do you, son?' was the smiling rejoinder. "'He certainly looks like a very nice little boy.' "'Suppose you and he shake hands, Frank?' "'Yes, sir,' said the child, holding out a small, plump hand. "'What's your name, little boy?' "'Harold Traveller. And yours is Frank?' "'Yes, Frank Daly. Don't you like this nice big boat?' "'Yes, I do. Won't you come with me and speak to my papa and mamma? Frank looked inquiringly at his father. "'Yes, you may go if you wish,' returned the latter, and the two started off, hand in hand. Mamma, see, isn't he a dear little boy? asked Harold, leading his new friend up before her with an air of proud ownership. Yes, indeed, she said, bending down to kiss Frank and stroke his hair. I think he's a good boy, cause he didn't come till his papa told him to, continued Harold. A very good way to judge of a boy, said Cousin Ronald. His name is Fink, said Harold. Fink, that's Cousin Ronald, and this is Papa, and this is Grandpa and so on, leading him from one to another till he had introduced him to the whole party, not even omitting baby Herbert and Mammy. Then Frank's papa came for him, saying the air was growing very cool, and it was time to go in. Our friends were of the same opinion, and all repaired to the ladies' saloon, where, through the children, they and the Daly soon made acquaintance. Mr. Daly was a minister going south for the winter, for the sake of his own and his wife's health. Cousin Ronald took Frank on his knee, and asked, "'What are you going to do, my little fellow, when you get to be a man?' "'Preach the gospel, sir.' "'Aha! Aha! Mm-hmm! Mm-hmm! 
And what will you say? I'll tell the people we'll sing the twenty-third piece of ham. How will that sound? Rather comical, I think, my man. Are you no afraid folk might laugh? No, sir. They don't laugh when Papa says it. Aha! Mm-hmm. Mr. Daly smiled. I never knew before, said he, that my boy intended to follow my profession. The ladies were weary, and retired to their staterooms shortly after tea. But the gentlemen sought the open air again, and paced the deck for some time. "'Have a cigar, sir?' asked Mr. Lilburn, addressing Mr. Daly. "'Thank you. No, I don't smoke.' "'Aha! Mm-hmm. In that you seem to be of one mind with my friends here, the Dinsmores and Traveller,' remarked Lilburn, lighting one for himself and placing it between his lips. "'I wonder, now, if you know how much you miss by your abstinence.' "'Well, sir, as to that, I know what some of my friends and acquaintance would have missed "'if they had abstained from the use of the weed. "'One have, would have missed a terrible dyspepsia "'that laid him in his grave in the prime of life. "'Another, cancer of the lip, which did the same by him "'after years of horrible suffering. "'Aha! Mm-hmm! Aha! But surely those were rare cases.' "'I think not very. "'You don't think that the majority of those who use it feel no ill effects?' I do indeed. The probably comparatively few are aware that tobacco is the cause of their ailments. Doubtless that is the case, remarked Mr. Dinsmore. I was a moderate smoker for years before I discovered that I was undermining my constitution by the indulgence. At length, however, I became convinced of that fact, and gave it up at once. For that reason, and the sake of the example to my boy here, who has been willing to profit by his father's experience, and abstain altogether. "'I have never used the weed in any way,' said Horace, Jr. "'And I,' remarked Traveller, "'abandons its use about the same time that Dinsmore did, "'and for the same reasons. "'By the way, I met with a very strong article on the subject lately, "'which I cut out and placed in my pocket-book.' "'Aha! Mm-hmm! Suppose you give us the benefit of it,' "'suggested Lilburn good-naturedly. "'I'm open to conviction.' "'With all my heart, if you will step into the gentleman's cabin where there's a light.' He led the way, the others all following, and taking out a slip of paper read from it in a distinct tone, loud enough to be heard by those all about him, without disturbing the other passengers. One drop of nicotine, extracted tobacco, placed on the tongue of a dog, will kill him in a minute. <clears throat> the hundredth part of a grain pricked under the skin of a man's arm will produce nausea and fainting. That which blackens old tobacco pipes is infrarheumatic oil a grain of which would kill a man in a few seconds. The half-dozen cigars which most smokers use a day contain six or seven grains, enough, if concentrated and absorbed, to kill three men, and a pound of tobacco, according to its quality, contains from one quarter to one and a quarter ounces. Is it strange, then, that smokers and chewers have a thousand ailments, that German physicians attribute one-half of the deaths among the young men of that country to tobacco, that the French Polytechnic Institute had to prohibit its use on account of its effects upon the mind, that men go grow dyspepsic, hypochondriac, insane, and delirious from its use. One of the direct effects of tobacco is to weaken the heart. Notice the multitude of sudden deaths, and see how many are smokers and chewers. In a small country town, seven of these mysterious providences occurred within the circuit of a mile, all directly traceable to tobacco, 
and any physician on a few moments reflection can match this fact by his own observation and then such powerful acids produce intense irritation and thirst thirst which water does not quench hence a resort to cider and beer the more this thirst is fed the more insatiate it becomes and more fiery drink is needed out of seven hundred convicts examined at the new york state prison six hundred were confined for crimes committed under the influence of liquor and five hundred said that they had been led to drink by the use of tobacco footnote j e vose of the family christian almanac for eighteen seventy six aha aha mm-hmm mm-hmm aha that's strongly put remarked mr lilburn reflectively i'm afraid i'll have to give it up what say you sir turning to mr daly has a man a right of choice in such a matter as this a right to injure his body to say nothing of the mind by a self-indulgence the pleasure of which seems to overbalance to him the possible or probable suffering it may cause no sir what know ye not that your body is the temple of the holy ghost which is in you which ye have of god and ye are not your own for ye are bought with a price therefore glorify god in your body and in your spirit which are god's right sir i was thinking of those words of the apostle and also of these other if any man defile the temple of god him shall god destroy for the temple of god is holy which temple ye are we certainly have no right to injure our bodies either by neglect or self-indulgence know ye not that your bodies are members of christ and again i beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of god that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice wholly acceptable unto god which is your reasonable service it must require a good deal of resolution for one who has become fond of the indulgence to give it up remarked mr daly no doubt no doubt returned mr lilburn but if thy right eye offend thee pluck it out and cast it from thee for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell there was a pause broken by young horace who had been watching a group of men gathered about a table at the further end of the room they're gambling yonder and i'm afraid that young fellow is being badly fleeced by the middle-aged man opposite the eyes of the whole party were at once turned in that direction i'm afraid you're right horace said mr Travilla, recalling with an inward shudder the scene he had witnessed in a gambling hell many years ago in which the son of his friend beresford so nearly lost his life what can be done to save him some effort must be made and he started up as if with the intention of approaching the players stay a moment exclaimed lilburn in an undertone and laying a detaining hand upon Travilla's arm but with his gaze intently fixed upon the older gamester aha mm-hmm that fellow is certainly cheating i saw him slip a card from his coat sleeve the words had scarcely passed his lips when a voice spoke apparently close at the villain's side aha i sees you well how you run the goat sleeve down mit the guards and sheets that poor boy vat is blame at you yo sir you is one big sheet how dare you sir who are you cried the rascal starting up white with rage and turning to face his accuser <clears throat> who was it where is that dutch scoundrel who dared to accuse me of cheating he cried sending a fierce glance about the rim what is that you calls me von dutch scoundrel your man met the broken nose i say it again you is one pig sheep 
This time, the voice seemed to come from a stateroom behind the gambler. Towering with rage, he rushed to the door and tried to open it. Failing in that, he demanded admittance in loud, angry tones, at the same time shaking the door violently, and kicking against it with a force that seemed likely to break in the panels. There was an answer a yell, a sound as of someone bouncing out of his berth upon the floor. The key turned hastily in the lock. The door was thrown wide open, and a little Frenchman appeared on its threshold in night attire, bowie knife and pistol in hand, and black eyes flashing with indignant anger. "'Sir, monsieur, I will know for what is this disturbance of my slumbers?' "'Sir,' said the other, stepping back, instantly cooled down at the sight of the weapons. "'I beg pardon. I was looking for a scoundrel of a Dutchman who has been abusing me. But I see he is not here.' "'No, sir, he is not here.' And the door was slammed violently, too. "'Ah, men met the prokodos. You wake up the wrong passenger. Ha-ha!' I tells you again, you're one big sheep. Now the voice came from the skylight overhead, apparently, and with a fierce imprecation, the irate gamester rushed upon deck and ran hither and thither in search of his tormentor. His victim, who had been looking on during the little scene and listening to the mysterious voice in silent, wide-eyed wonder and fear, now rose hastily, his face deathly pale, with trembling hands gathered up the money he had staked, and hurrying to his stateroom, locked himself in. The remaining passengers looked at one another. "'What does it mean?' cried one. "'A ventriloquist aboard, of course,' returned another. "'Let's follow and see the fun.' "'I wonder which of us it is,' remarked the first, looking hard at our party. "'I don't know, but come on. That fellow Nick Ward is a noted black and ruffian, had his nose broken in a fight, and is sensitive on the subject. Was cheating, of course.' They passed out, our party close in the rear. "'Where's that Dutch villain?' Ward was screaming, following up his question with a volley of oaths. "'Who?' asked the mate. "'I've seen none up here, though there are some in the steerage.' Down to the steerage flew the gambler without waiting to reply, and, bounding into a group of German immigrants seated there, quietly smoking their pipes, angrily demanded which of them it was who had been on the upper deck just now, abusing him and calling him a cheat, and a man with a broken nose. They heard him in silence, with a cool, phlegmatic indifference most exasperating to one in his present mood. Drawing his revolver, "'Speak!' he shouted. "'Tell me which one of you it was, or I'll, I'll shoot every mother's son of you!' His arms were suddenly pinioned from behind, while a deep voice grunted, "'You will, will you? I think not. You are my prisoner.' There is no party here as they call your names, and you will put up that little gun. A man of giant size and Herculean strength had laid aside his pipe, and, slowly rising to his feet, seized the scoundrel in his powerful grasp. Let me go, yelled Ward, making a desperate effort to free his arms. Aha! Men with the broken nose, you wish wake up the wrong passenger again, came mockingly from above. It is me as calls you von big sheet, and I does you it again. There, the villain's up on the deck now, cried Ward, in impotent rage, grinding his teeth. Let go my arms. Let go, I say, and I'll teach him a lesson. I dinks no. I dinks I did you von lesson, returned his captor, not relaxing his grasp in the least. But the captain's voice was heard in stern tones, asking, What's the cause of all this disturbance? What are you doing down there, Ward? I'll have no fighting aboard.
the German released his prisoner, and the latter slunk away with muttered threats and imprecations upon the head of his tormentor. Both that night and the next there was much speculation among the passengers in regard to the occurrence, but our friends kept their own counsel, and the children, cautioned not to divulge Cousin Ronald's secret, guarded it carefully, for all had been trained to obedience, and were anxious not to lose the fun he made for them. Mr. Lilburn and Mr. Daly, each at a different time, sought out the young man, Ward's intended victim, and tried to influence him for good. He thought that he had been rescued by the interposition of some supernatural agency, and solemnly declared his fixed determination never again to approach a gaming table, and, throughout the voyage, adhered to his resolution, in spite of every influence Ward could bring to bear upon him to break it. Yet there was gambling again the second night, between Ward and several others of his profession. They kept it up till after midnight. Then Mr. Lilburn, waking from his first sleep in a stateroom nearby, thought he would break it up once more. A deep stillness reigned in the cabin. It would seem that every one on board the vessel, except themselves and the watch on deck, were wrapped in profound slumber. An intense, voiceless excitement possessed the players, for the game was a close one, and the stakes were very heavy. They bent eagerly over the board, each watching with feverish anxiety his companion's movements, each casting, now and again, a gloating eye upon the heap of gold and greenbacks that lay between them, and at times half-stretching out his hand to clutch it. A deep groan startled them, and they sprang to their feet, pale and trembling with sudden terror, each holding his breath and straining his ear to catch a repetition of the dread sound. But all was silent and after a moment of anxious waiting, they sat down to their game again, trying to conceal and shake off their fears with a forced, unnatural laugh. But scarcely had they taken the cards into their hands again, when a second groan, deeper, louder, and more prolonged than the first, again started them to their feet. "'I tell you, this is growing serious,' whispered one, in a shaking voice, his very lips white with fear. "'It came from under the table.' gasped Ward. Look what's there. Look yourself. Both together, then, and simultaneously they bent down and peered into the space under the board. There was nothing there. What can it have been? they asked each other. Oh, nonsense, what fools we are. Of course someone's ill in one of the staterooms. And they resumed their game for the second time. But a voice of full of unutterable anguish came from beneath their feet. "'Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame.' And in mortal terror they sprang up, dashed down their cards, and fled, not even waiting to gather up the filthy lucre for which they were selling their souls. It was the last game of cards for that trip. The captain, coming in shortly after the sudden flight of the gamblers, took charge of the money and the next day restored it to the owners. To Elsie's observant eyes, it presently became evident that the dailies were in very straitened circumstances. They made no complaint, but with her warm sympathy and delicate tact, she soon drew from the wife all the information she needed to convince her that here was a case that called for the pecuniary assistance Providence had put in her power to give. She consulted with her husband, and the result was a warm invitation to the dailies to spend the winter at Viamede, where they would have all the benefit of the mild climate, congenial society, 
use of the library, horses, etc., and be at no expense. Oh, how kind, how very kind, Mrs. Daly said, with tears of joy and gratitude. We have hardly known how we should meet the most necessary expenses of this trip, but have been trying to cast our care upon the Lord, asking Him to provide, and how wonderfully He has answered our petitions. But it seems too much, too much for you to do for strangers. Strangers, my dear friend, Elsie answered, pressing her hand affectionately. Are we not sisters in Christ? Ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Ye are all one in Christ Jesus. We feel, my husband and I, that we are only the stewards of his bounty, and, because he has said, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. It is the greatest privilege and delight to do anything for his people. Mr. Traveller had already expressed the same sentiments to Mr. Daly, so the poor minister and his wife accepted the invitation with glad and thankful hearts, and Harold and Frank learned with delight that they were to live together for what seemed to their infant minds an almost interminable length of time. The passage to New Orleans was made without accident or detention. As our party left the vessel, a voice was heard from the hold, crying in dolorous accents and a rich Irish brogue, Oh, Captain dear, help me out, help me out! I've got fast between these boxes here, bad cess to em. I can't help myself at all, at all. Help you out, you passage thief, roared the captain in return. Yes, I'll help you out with a vengeance, and put you into the hands of the police. Aha, aha, mm hmm, mm hmm. You shall have to catch him first, remarked Mr. Lilburn, with a quiet smile stepping from the plank to the wharf as he spoke ah cousin you are incorrigible said elsie laughingly end of chapter twenty three of elsie's motherhood recording by elena may